Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote, but you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Matt Hart Spade. And I'm Jenners. And today we have a very special guest, Peter Silberman, who I'm sure you know as the principal songwriter, frontman of The Antlers. He's also a revered solo artist, and he's one half of Spatial Relations, who just released their debut record, Talking to Strangers, the companion album. So the last time I saw you was for the 10th anniversary of Hospice. Uh, There was sort of this mini tour uh, in the U.S. and I think possibly elsewhere as well. You and the rest of the band were revisiting this album that has meant so much to so many people. So how was it to kind of uh, revisit it in an acoustic way? And can you describe that experience from last year? Yeah, happily. Um, You know, it it was kind of a dream tour experience. Um, we, we were traveling with very minimal gear, which is always nice when you're used to carting around a lot of equipment, because um, it was two, basically two guitars and a snare drum and ourselves. And um, so that, you know, that just made us kind of light on our feet, which was great. But it was also just a really um, lovely group of people. It was uh, myself and, and Michael Lerner, who's been our drummer for, for a very, very long time since the beginning. And um, as well as Tim Mislock, who uh, toured with us back in the day, and uh, he, you know, he and I have remained very close and played a lot of music together in the years since. So it was, it was very smooth entry into reinterpreting these songs uh, in a new style and heading back out on the road and just having a lot of natural chemistry to begin with. Um, and then, as f- just as far as the shows themselves, they were wonderful. I mean, it's um, it's a very different experience touring an album that people are very familiar with and 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 care about and have a relationship existing relationship with already versus uh, trying to sell people on <laughs> new songs mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah but it, you just felt a lot of love in these shows and uh, a lot of enthusiasm and we also got to put on these shows uh, in you know, we had so much control over, over what the vibe was and what the uh, what the venues were like. We chose really smaller rooms, a lot of theaters and churches, um, all seated shows. Very different than the than the kinds of shows we were playing when we first toured the album in two thousand nine and ten. Yeah, the 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 room in Brooklyn, I believe it was a church in Brooklyn Heights. Yeah, a really stunning room. Yeah, that was the um, first Unitarian church in. Brooklyn, yeah, Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. So we were hoping to go all the way back to your early uh, music memories when you were a kid, and um, yeah, I was wondering what you were into, and if you could remember like the first albums you purchased, the first mixtapes that you either made or received. What are your earliest memories of really getting into music very seriously? Well, there was always a lot of music playing in my house growing up. Uh, my dad's a guitar player, and he 
he was always, you know, playing a lot of Clapton and Hendrix and Beatles and more kind of like country and, and, uh, and the like. So I, I remember that stuff from a very early age and that was some of the music I learned how to play guitar to. But I think once I had the, uh, once I started developing my own taste, that was definitely, all of that was definitely in there, but I was also, you know, raising myself on MTV and, you know, watching tons of MTV and music videos and, and the radio was always, was always on. And, you know, I, I don't remember what the, it wasn't K-Rock back then in New York, but it was, I don't think it was, it was some other like alternative rock station plus like Z100, which was right. playing all the, all the pop greats, but also all the, all the alt rock that was super popular at the time. So that all made its way in there. I think my first, my first albums were cassettes and they would have been, well, my, I think my first ever cassette was a cassette single of uh, the Four Seasons, uh, What a Night. Wow. I just like loved that song when I was little. I don't know why. That's such a classy to, first tape. I know it's really like it's kind of a left field choice for I I don't know I must have been like eight maybe and um, I just love that song. I used to listen to it on the school bus, and um, but you know among those or in addition to that one, um, Nirvana like those were my first tapes. So Nevermind and In Utero and I remember it being. A really big deal. I remember calling the the local CD store. And this was, I guess, once I started buying CDs. But I I placed an order on the phone to pick up Incesticide, and I felt like really like badass for getting it because it was parental advisory and like they shouldn't <laughs> have been, mm-hmm. you know, they shouldn't have been selling it to me. Same with like um, the Offspring, Smash. Sure. Um, I remember like loving that album, and that was among like my group of friends when I was little that was a big deal because there was that one song in the middle of the record where all the music stops and he just like shouts a string of profanities <laughs> and we, it, you like listen to it in secret and I had friends whose parents found out about it and took the CD away from them and, um, <laughs> I never would have pegged you as an Offspring fan <laughs> oh, <Right. yeah. laughs> Off, I loved Smash um, yeah Green Day Mm-hmm. Um, God, who else would it have been at the time? I mean, it was just all over the map for me. But it was, I think Nirvana was probably my, like, my big favorite at that time. And that was, the f- you know, the first songwriter I listened to seriously. And I was really young. I was like, I must have been about eight or nine. Um, but I think that was the first thing that I responded to on like an emotional level, even mm-hmm. being that young. I can't imagine what it's like to listen to Nirvana at that age. It's it's yeah it's um it's dark it's, yeah. it's a dark thing <laughs> to an eight year old. But he had also like I watched a lot of MTV and I knew that he had like it was all over the news that he had just killed himself. So I was aware of this darkness at least as much as an eight year old can comprehend that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you remember making like mixtapes back in the day or receiving them? I, I remember trying to make mixtapes and kind of messing it up and like yeah. having the songs not line up the right way and overlap each other. Um, 
but I think I was like a com I was more like a completist. Like I liked the album. Um, yeah. But I definitely, I mean, I made. I think I had mixtapes made for me. Like I, my sister made mixtapes. She was like four years older, so she was of of very much of that generation. Um, and I made mixed CDs once I had a CD burner, but that was you know we're fast forwarding a few years into the yeah. future. What about some of like your aughts memories? Because that you know that was like I always say it's like a moment of in time that early aughts New York scene, and then you kind of growing up around New York, like, what, what's, like, your perspective on all of that? Well, I was in high school between 2000 and 2004, and so most of, and, and I grew up about an hour north of the city, so, like, I had an awareness of the city, but not really a ton of awareness about what was going on down there, except for the bigger things that broke through, so, like, um, so, like, Is This It made it to my high school, but it like, not a lot of kids were listening to it. Mm -hmm. And to give you perspective, like, not a lot of kids in my high school, like, like I was strange for listening to Radiohead in my high school. Um, which seems crazy. But, yeah, things like, uh, like the Strokes and Interpol made their way to, um, to our high school. Um, the Rapture probably did. Um, yeah. But they were still, like, they were they were considered very alternative to what most kids were listening to. And I think what was, you know, big in my high school was Dave Matthews Band, jam bands, mm -hmm. um, Screamo. And that was, like, kind of a heyday for that, for, for Screamo in particular and in that region because so much of that was coming out of New Jersey and Long Island. Right. So if there was anything resembling a scene near where I grew up, um, it would have been that. You know, up in like yeah. Poughkeepsie, up the the Chance, and um, and yeah, a lot. Of, like I said, a lot of bands coming from Jersey and Long Island, and a lot of mm -hmm. bands in my town and surrounding towns imitating that stuff. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you were saying about wanting to listen to the album in its entirety in full, it doesn't surprise me that you say that because when I listen to your records solo or with the Antlers or with this new release with this new project, um, I feel like they are very much a uh, it's a full unit. It's not as much of like a, a singles type of party. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. And I, I think um, I probably gravitated towards albums from a really young age. And it, it informed every, everything that came after. Can we talk about early Antlers days? Like, sure. I feel like when it was just you and it was, uh, you, you brought your acoustic guitar and you would play like Union Hall and uh, uh, Cake Shop, Matchless. Uh, a lot of these venues may or may not exist anymore. What were your memories before the Antlers broke in sort of a major way? It was dark. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that period of time in the city, um, like I moved to the city in 2000, uh, beginning of 2006. It seemed like a few movements had just passed, um, like the freak folk thing had just kind of, just passed. There was still a lot of like residue from it, um, and same with you know like the. I don't know. I guess the post punk thing had kind of not passed, yeah. but like there was a peak that happened, mm -hmm. and um, I was, I was the stuff that I was making wasn't very New York and it wasn't very Brooklyn. 
and I remember trying to figure out how to um, how how to go about playing shows and where where I would fit in there because I I'd never I felt like what I was doing was too like earnest for the sidewalk cafe, but it was too weird for the bitter end. And I also just didn't know anybody, so I would do as much digging as I could online. Just I mean basically um, through Brooklyn Vegan and probably both of your sites and um, and that was sort of where I got my ideas about where these venues were and what shows were happening and which places seemed like they might be a good fit but it was hard to um, it was hard to book a show at one of the what I considered like the legit spaces and I remember my first few shows were you know basically venues where they there are never any people there whatsoever they technically have a stage but like there's no there's no audience they never they only book local acts and those are local acts that don't have anybody coming to the shows i'm not really sure how that business model was supposed to work for them because <laughs> a lot of the bars never seemed that popular either but um and so those shows are always terrible <laughs> like pretty much without a doubt um i won't get into naming venues because it's not you know yeah yeah support the venues right now but uh, yeah exactly but um it really i think my sh my like thinking at the time was um i needed to get my music out to to you folks and and uh you know hope that would get some of the word around and a lot of you were, were putting on shows here and there and that just that just seemed like the the path for me at that stage. I think it was probably Pat Duffy who p first put me on at a show, um, and he was like such a huge supporter uh, early on, and and such a lifeline when I it was like so hard to book a show or that to get anybody to come to. Pop tarts. Yeah, pop tarts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it was still, it was even a long road to get to, like, blog-hosted shows at the time. But I do remember that, like, of, mo you know, most of the venues ignored me in those days, but I real like, Cake Shop and Union Hall were the two venues that I considered really cool that actually gave me a shot. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it meant a great deal to me at the time. Even if those, like, first couple of shows, I, I couldn't get anybody there, but, like, my family or, or a couple friends um i just i love the vibe of those spaces like cake shop was just like its own little cave and and so like um you could play a show there to nobody and still feel okay about yourself <laughs> <laughs> um and then that's Union, a cool scene yeah and i mean i and i also just appreciated a andy for putting me on bills and like when i would reach out to them and see that like some like interesting band was coming through and ask if, if he would throw me on the bill that he would and and same with with Skippy at Union Hall um yeah. like and that was just such a, a such a like a beautiful space too that um that I, I always felt like honored to play there and and especially Union Hall had acts come through that I would be like I I would be surprised that a band that I considered kind of big would be coming through and playing there and again, like like Skippy put me on the bill, and I don't know how much it did to like advance anything for me, but it was a it was a good feeling, and it felt like progress. 
I mean, I think it's so cool when they're like in-house talent buyer supports bands like that or like up and coming and like they kind of play matchmaker a little bit. Um, I think it's really, it may, you may not know, but like, I think that it does do something because it's already like kind of putting you in with other kind of known bands and just establishing you a little bit more in, in whatever way the perception is, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get to, uh, maybe somebody will arrive early get to get drinks and they'll see your band. I don't know if that happens as much anymore. I feel like there's so many like statistical numbers that people like, you know, judge bands by these days. You know, it's like how many likes do you have? How many followers do you yeah. have? And is it really about do I really love this band and I want to throw them on a bill? I feel like it must have been MySpace back then. Like that was yeah. that was really the only metric you could go by. But yeah, I mean it, it made it was a, a really cool thing to feel supported like that. And yeah, the dream would always be like, maybe like I'll get to play on one of these CMJ showcases, which uh, Matt, I believe you put me on one of yours at Pianos mm -hmm. back in the day. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just like, it's a game, it was a game of inches. And you just hope that something starts to make like an inch of difference along the way. How was it once uh, things started to click and, and, and all the buzz was, was being garnered and, and the room started to get a little bigger? Uh, was that unnerving? What, did it seem right uh, as you kind of graduated as a band from, say, you know, Mercury to Bowery to Webster, for example? I mean, it was mind-blowing when it happened. And um, in my, like, when I, when I first moved to the city and I first started trying to make something of this, Oh, and I should I should give a shout out to Jezebel Music. If you guys remember that entity, mm -hmm. yeah, because um, mm -hmm. they also were among the first to like give me a shot and put me on a showcase, and that that was um, that meant the world to me. Gabe was a super sweet guy and very supportive. But anyway, I was saying it was so uh, it was mind blowing that that was happening because when I moved to the city and uh, and was trying to get things going and playing all these shows, like my pie in the sky dream was that I got to play the Mercury Lounge. Yeah. And by the time we actually got booked there, I think we had, I think our first show there was, it was like we were first of three opening for the Cave Singers. Oh, I remember them. Yeah, it, they were great. I remember just being like, okay, I like, <laughs> I can die happy now. I got to play the Mercury <laughs> and, um, but from there, it started to happen really fast, and suddenly we were playing Mercury and selling it out, and then suddenly we were, uh, we were, first of three on a, a show at Bowery, opening for. Vetiver, I think. Mm -hmm. Um. And then, getting like last minute calls to open other shows, and I remember the craziest one was in. So this was 2009, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of hype building, and we were every, every day brought something new to us that we were just like I can't believe what's going on right now. We still hadn't like we'd been on very unsuccessful tours up until that point, but hadn't the momentum was really just starting to build. And I remember getting a last minute, very last minute call that the show. Uh, that evening at Webster Hall needed a first of three because their first of three 
uh, had to drop out. The first of three was cymbals eat guitars, and the headliner was the Walkman, and Beach House was opening for them. Crazy lineup. <laughs> yeah, that is a crazy lineup. Yeah, and we got the call at maybe like three in the afternoon, and I was at work. I was working at LPR at the time, and Darby was home. Michael was like at the post office, and <laughs> we all just had to call each other and be like, "Can we, like, can we make this happen?" Like everyone, like we need to go to wherever all of our gear was at the time. It was probably probably at Darby's house. Um, we need to we need to scramble, get all our stuff together, get to Webster immediately, and and do this. And it was the biggest show we had we had played by far, and um, and we somehow did it. Like I I left work early, and um, we all rushed home, got our got ourselves together, got all of our gear, went back to the venue, and then played this show. And I remember seeing from seeing some of my friends in the audience who were there to see the Walkman who saw me come out on stage and were shocked and were just like, what the hell is going on here? So it was, it was all whirlwind. Once it started to pick up like that, it suddenly, we suddenly seemed like we were light years away from where we had been less than a year before that playing, you know, playing empty rooms. It, it happened fast after going very slowly for a long time. Yeah, it did feel like kind of a fast thing, because I, I, if I remember correctly, uh, Hospice was self-released, and then it was put out by French Kiss. Yeah. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then I feel like once it was re-released, it, it, every day it was like, yeah, it was a bigger and bigger kind of mountain. Yeah, yeah that, that's how it felt. Um, and it was interesting too because I had been I had been like <laughs> working the blogs for a while at that point, and and gotten good like pickup here and there. It never translated to people coming out to shows, and then something something changed like in the in that spring of two thousand nine, um, and I don't really know what it was that changed it. Um, you know, it might have been NPR, it might have been just the album itself circulating and it going from being like, here's, you know, here's like a, a buzzy local band to like, there's, there's something of magnitude here. That Tiny Desk performance was pretty, pretty great. So I think, you know, you might have captured the, the magic of the NPR <laughs> reach, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was an even tinier desk back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was before they would invite pop stars, really, to play Tiny Desk. Oh, for sure, you know? for yeah. sure. But they just re-released that uh, Tiny Desk. Yeah, I yeah. saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, During I saw that. It's, it's, it's a trip to, to go back that far in the past and see that Did stuff. you get a bunch of responses after they reposted it? I think so. I mean, what was, and this kind of ties back to the anniversary tour, as much as this is like, it was nostalgic for a lot of people, and I think probably seeing the, the tiny desk reposted is nostalgic. We met a lot of young people on tour who like were getting into the record for the first time, and they weren't around in 2009 for, for, for that first wave of it. And um, so it was like a new generation discovering it, which was 
you know, made me feel a little old in a really <laughs> nice way. Um, <laughs> but so I think I think we're finding that you know there's there's people who this record um, was important to when they were uh, in their early twenties, and now they're uh, you know now they're in their thirties and their life has moved on, but you know maybe they still have a special place in it, but maybe they've like turned their kids onto it, which is trippy. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> More kids in high school now who are just, um, you know, mining the, the past and the way, the way that people consume music now makes it very easy. Mm-hmm. I could see how your vocals could be like little lullabies. <laughs> <laughs> I always was wondering if it's like totally surreal to have people come up to you after a show, I guess particularly around hospice because it was such a groundbreaking release, and they have hospice-related tattoos and hospice-related stories, and they're kind of like uh, telling you these moments in, the, in their lives that were so shaped by the album. Um, how does that feel to like kind of take that all in as a performer who wrote it, not maybe anticipating that all these people would be so touched by it? Well, when I made it, I didn't anticipate anybody hearing it. Um, so that was an immediate adjustment when, I, when it first started to gain some momentum and find an audience. Um, so when I actually started meeting people in person who were telling me about their connection to it, um, it was disorienting. And it took me a second to recognize that it's okay for somebody to have a connection to this thing for different reasons than I do. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's it's probably better that way, um, that it that it can be more open to interpretation. But you know, ultimately, it's flattering, and it's the um, it is the kind of thing that makes me feel like a um, like put something good out there into the world, and makes you know it's a, it it's fulfilling beyond like any other measure of success creatively like of course always wanting to move forward and do more but um to have had some kind of impact on on people in 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 that with that kind of depth um just makes me feel like mission accomplished definitely i also enjoyed your solo album that you put out a few years ago just in terms of like what's going on now, right now with the world and our lives, re-listening to the song New York, like really kind of just like stood out to me. It's almost like recontextualized mm-hmm. it for me, listening to it now. How do you feel about s- stuff that you've written like that? Do you see it in a new context as well? Or like, are you, do you experience stuff that you've written in the past in new ways? Definitely. I think the more, the more space I, and time that, the more space I have from something I've made and the more time that passes, the more I'm able to reinterpret it. You know, that, that solo album, Impermanence, was inspired by a very specific experience. I had losing my hearing and, and having this, te- this phase of a couple months where, uh, where sound was, was excruciating for me and I, I, my, like, my senses of perception were all out of whack and and it, it was a really disturbing experience, but this album came out of it, and the whole thing became kind of a meditation on the temporariness of life and of you know the physical body and of you know in general temporary nature of reality, 
and that has continued to be true for me in different ways. And yeah. I think the experience of the last several months as the entire world has changed, um, you know, it, that idea continues to ring true of things that you grow accustomed to and think of as stable pillars of, of life are, are not so stable. And it, it doesn't take much yeah. to completely wipe them out. Um, and yeah, that song in particular, you know, it was, it was written about living in a really loud city when sound is painful for you. But, you know, I, I haven't been down to the city since it shut down, but reports from all my friends who are still down there, it's, you know, it sounds like it was pretty eerie and a very different kind of place. And I could see, I could see that song taking on new meaning uh, yeah. in, in, in a weird time. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you just released an album as Spatial Relations, which is a, a collaboration between yourself and Nick Principe from Port St. Willow. And it is really stunning. And you know what I find great about it is that I love both of your voices so, so much. But this album is pretty much exclusively instrumental, correct? Yeah. I just find it really stunning and kind of meditative in a way. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, our voices are nowhere on this. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, we're, we're excited that it's out and that um, we managed to find a way to turn this, this sizable body of work for, for one project into, into a cohesive album, what I think of as a cohesive album. How did that all come about? We started a scoring collaboration a couple of years ago and um, largely have worked in doing some scoring for podcasts and some theme writing for podcasts. But through a friend of, our, a friend of ours was uh, producing the audiobook for Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book that was released last year, Talking to Strangers. And he, uh, he thought of us as uh, somebody who could be a good candidate for scoring it. Um, and the process, you know, he brought us into it and our process was generating like a massive library of, of sounds and ideas. Um, some of them more ambient and atmospheric and then others uh, more band centric. Um, Nick playing drums and uh, me on, on bass and then both of us covering a lot of other ground as far as synths and uh, samples and loops and guitars and things like that. So we, we provided them with this huge library and uh, Alex Lewis, the producer who brought us in, he uh, was responsible for placing all of this throughout the audiobook, which is an enormous task. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but we were able to take those recordings, many of which were like a minute long and develop them into longer ideas, more fully fleshed out, things that move a little bit more, feel a little more song-like. Yeah, we spent a, a couple months last summer developing the whole thing into an album that you would actually want to put on, either something that, you know, if you've listened to the audiobook, something to let you kind of stay in that world without necessarily rereading it or re-listening to it. So it really does act as a companion album in that way, but I think it can be separated from it as well. You don't have to have read the book to, to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I've heard you, uh, you and Nick perform together, you know, on stage and, and on record and whatnot. But uh, uh, 
even when your voices are not on the release, it, it's so apparent that there is just this kind of symbiosis uh, with the two of you. And I guess it's because you guys go way back. Weren't you childhood friends, or am I dreaming this? Oh, yeah. We've, yeah, we've been, you go up way back. We've been friends since we were about 11, and we've been making music together about that long, too. Um, we started off, uh, you know, making songs in Cakewalk when we were that age, like on his on his family computer, and then... Uh, we started a band, um, which kind of ran the gamut of styles from, you know, like acoustic singer-songwriter stuff that you would expect from 13-year-olds to, um, you know, we were a pop-punk band for a little bit. We were kind of like a little proggy for a while, <laughs> a little bit of a Radiohead ripoff here and there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was us, us and a, another another player who's not not part of our collaboration anymore um but we've been making music together and writing music and writing songs together for a very very long time so we we have a musical vocabulary with each other it's very intuitive and even even since uh, our high school band broke up and we you know went on to college and went on to our separate music careers We've continued making music together, a lot of it improvised, some of it recorded, and Spatial Relations was the first container we've had for this material since we were teenagers, really. Something to to kind of focus our energies and create finished music, or finish music that we've been creating. Because a lot of things, you know, sit in, sit in a state of uh, infancy or half-completion can be surprisingly hard to finish music. Like, I think we've always been good about generating the ideas, but the editing, the, the compiling, the development, um, that's taken a little time for us to, to get the knack of. But so far, so good. We've, we've created a lot of music in the last couple of years since formalizing this entity. And it's nice to have this first release out now. First of many, I hope. Yeah, I was going to ask what comes next. Is it going to be more kind of soundtracking and, and podcasts, or, or what, what does the future hold for Spatial Relations beyond this, a this album? Yeah, I think the primary focus is scoring, and so mm -hmm. most of the work that he and I are doing together is, um, is scoring for different clients. So, um, you know, we, we just, we're just wrapping up a, uh, a couple episodes of another podcast right now and um, have some some more audiobook work in our future. So depending depending on each scenario and whether or not we're able to retain some rights to release it, um, sometimes those things are just just bought outright by, by the client. Um, other times we retain the rights and we turn it into um, something more musical, something more in the album format. So we are hoping to, from this album continue to make more of these and sometimes they'll be attached to to a commissioned project but sometimes it might just be for the sake of making something it'd be really nice to get to that point sometime soon we got kind of the infrastructure in place to 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 put things out so it's it's nice and i think for us to have a formal way of making instrumental music um, outside of our individual projects which are very personal and very um, individualistic this has become a really nice way for us to collaborate. Do you think your collaboration would always be instrumental, or would you 
consider adding like your vocals to it? It's not off the table. I, the way that I tend to think of it is like if I'm, um, if my vocals are involved, then it's, it sort of becomes, it doesn't become the antlers necessarily, but it becomes of that world. And I think for him, when his vocals are involved, it becomes Port St. Willow. So it's a bit of a different creature to do that, mm. but I don't That's think fair. it's off the table. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, pe do pe when people commission you for these, like, theme musics or, you know, soundscape work um, in these podcasts or audiobooks, do they ever ask for your audio, like, your vocal audios? Or just because it's so, like, it's, you know, it's so unique and pleasant that maybe some people would, like, want that, you know, oh, versus the instrumental. Um, well, the funny thing is, is that... Um, podcasts and audiobooks are just a very different it's just a totally separate world from the music world and so I would say most of these people that we're working with are not familiar with with the antlers like they're not familiar with my band so they um you know they think of or or, or with Nick's project um so they think of us as a scoring production duo um, Got it. yeah and which is kind of by design yeah, I kind of like the idea of keeping it separate. Yeah. Totally. Uh, should we hop into repeat skip? I think so. Sure. Sounds good. So the first release is Yola Tango's And Then Nothing Turns Itself Inside Out from 2000. Peter, what's your relationship with this release and, and any certain memories from it? I have a lot of memories of this album, but the, the first one that comes to mind was when I first moved to uh, Williamsburg, and I was, um, it was while I was making hospice, actually, and I had two roommates who were both DJs, and if you remember that that aspect of the the North Brooklyn scene in, in 2007, 2008, those parties were a big part of it, you know, like, um, God, what were they called, like, misshapes and trash and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm sure you were Tis there. Was. I was there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they were DJs in that world, um, and they were basically nocturnal. So it was really, like, I had a lot of trouble sleeping in that apartment, and I found a couple records around that time that I would just put on every single night to fall asleep, and that was one of them. And I, I, used, to, um, I used to listen to it every single night, and it, it got me there. And, th and then I've never stopped listening to it, really. It's just, like, more than most albums that I've loved. It just has, like, infinite replay value for me. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned sleeping, because when I was re-listening to this album, I mean, I listen to this album once every, I don't know, couple years, but I haven't listened to it recently, and I was listening to it the other day on the couch, and I kind of dozed off. And I don't mean that in, like, a bad way. I mean, it kind of puts you in this state, you know? Yeah, I mean, as someone who makes pretty sleepy music i take it as a compliment if somebody falls asleep during a show or <laughs> while listening to it so jen yeah. what about you yeah no i feel the same way like um it has just a pleasant vibe to it overall so it's like super easy to listen to um but yeah i think some songs for me stand out more than others i don't know they're just like they're an easy band to listen to for me I have a lot of love for them. I think I like their, I just love what they've been about for so long. You know, mu musically, like they're so, they have such a wide range. Yeah. You know, they're very, very diverse. 
but I, I just, I always find them very comforting. And like, they're never, um, never trying too hard, but putting, but not, but without like a slacker mentality, like very like, like they're putting a lot of effort and care into what they do, but they also don't seem like they take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that sense too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, even no matter what kind of levels of success they've had over the years, I feel like they're always they just seem like down to earth or like no egos and and um and I think that comes across in the music too. Yeah, like, for sure. What were some of your favorites from this album? I I have a lot of them, but uh I mean, I think that the track that I would choose as my repeat is um is Night Falls Over Hoboken, which that song I can really just listen to it over and over again I find it very soothing I also used to listen to it often when we'd be coming home from a tour and be mm. you know driving back into the city and it would usually be nighttime and it just always felt like very appropriate it'd be like two or three in the morning and something about it just kind of fit but it's it's really fit into different phases of my life as well I just like I find it it's like kind of hypnotizing and it just eases anxiety that would be one of them. I always love Let's Save Tony Orlando's House. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I partly loved it because it's a classic Simpsons reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just like a, a great beat and a, and a lovely song. I like Georgia's vocals too. Yeah, me too. I just like love to hear her sing anytime. Madeline is a great mm-hmm. one. Uh, you can have it all. That was actually, I think, one of the first Yola Tango songs I ever heard. Um, kind of going back to mixtapes, my sister made me a mix CD when I was in high school, and it had uh, a bunch of things I'd never heard before, like like a bunch of Yola Tango songs from that album and from I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one, and Magnetic Fields and Ween and Jim O'Rourke and all this stuff that I was just not hip to yet. Mm-hmm. Cool older sister. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> very cool. So key, I think, when uh, when you can have that kind of influence. I always wish I had like an older sibling <laughs> who taught me, but luckily I had friends that were cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Matt? Um, so yeah, I love this album and. Uh, for me, my first introduction to Yola Tango was when a friend of mine put an autumn sweater on a mixtape for me, uh, my freshman year of college, I would say. And then I slowly started to get really into them as I was, you know, had my college radio show and whatnot. And then I saw them for the very first time a few weeks after 9-11 at uh, the 930 Club in D.C., which is where I feel like all roads lead with me <laughs> sometimes uh, is that space sure. and the black cat and yeah I for me like my favorite is actually cherry chapstick and I, I realize that in a sense it's kind of an, an anomaly on the album because it's kind of maybe more fast-paced and a little more like typical indie rock but for some reason I just remember kind of grooving to that song a lot um, but I really do appreciate the more mellow moments on this album as well and I think the opening track is really stunning and sets the tone really well. So yeah, I, th- there's really very little I would skip on this release. I mean, the only one I would skip actually is Hoboken <laughs> just because for me, um, the song is like 16, 17 minutes long. It is and crazy I feel long, like, for sure. Uh, <laughs> the buildup of it for me isn't 
worth the, the, the payoff or something like that. Like, I feel like uh, on Spiritualized uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, the last song, Cop Shoot Cop, is also about 17 oh, minutes that's long. that's a great one. I love that song. And I just kind of feel like, for me, that song builds in a way that kind of beautifully ends the album. And I think this is a beautiful album closer as well. It just uh, doesn't personally move me as much. Totally yeah. fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to put this song on my next <laughs> road trip back from upstate New York and uh, see, it, see how it goes. Um, because you always want like a really long song uh, that doesn't break up all your GPS uh, directions. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. But um, my repeat was um, also Every Day, the opening track. I just thought it was like moody as fuck and haunting and I just love the vibe of it in general and I also did like You Can Have It All and I went back and um, just for shits and giggles like listened to the original from George McRae and like they really did like their own twist on the song with all the acapella and I just uh, it likes you know the original is also an amazing song mm -hmm. it's it's amazing but it's like totally different yeah. Yeah, and I, this song always pops up on my playlist and stuff, so I, I don't know. It has a good vibe to it, summer vibe. But I love that you guys, uh, I guess, Peter, your your skip was like Matt's. Repeat. Yeah, we inverted. <laughs> oh, we did. Yeah, well, I actually, I really like Cherry Chapstick. Um, mm -hmm. My, I, if I, because I have to choose a skip on this record, I chose that one. But it's, um, it's because it is the outlier and... Like I said, I used to listen to this album to fall asleep, but when that song would come on, it would wake me up and scare the shit out of me. Um, <laughs> so if I had to give it a skip, it's it's because of that. But I would put it's because I would put it on, like painful, or I'd put it on. I can hear the heart beating as one. Yeah, it might have fit better on on that one. Yeah. But I like yeah. that they decided they're like we're gonna make our mellowest record, but then we're gonna put one just one noise jam in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> they couldn't help themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Sometimes I skip the first track, even though I love it, because mm -hmm. I find it very, like, creepy. And yeah. sometimes I need, like, I need to start with Our Way to Fall, just because it's so, like, like, warm and comforting and soothing that I'm like, I just need that right away. But <laughs> that first track is, is, like, one of the best Yola Tango songs, I'd say. Yeah, they're, they're always consistent. Um, our second repeat skip uh, that we're going to play with is uh, the books released from 2005, Lost and Safe. I always feel like the books were doing their own kind of thing and never really followed any trends. And um, love or hate them, I think what everything they've created was always really interesting. I mean, I would never consider myself like a mega, mega fan, but I do remember this album just really being kind of attached to for a couple months when it was released. Peter, what are your thoughts on this one? So, like, my earliest memories of it were uh, being a uh, radio DJ at Skidmore College in 2005. And they, uh, like probably most radio stations, have the hot box of all the new releases. And they're like, please, please play things from here. And I remember checking that one out because the books on a tiny liberal arts campus is, like, the kind of band that you hear all the all the all the most interesting people talking about <laughs> yeah and i was like all right i gotta see what this is about and um i just i i think i just loved it right away and it was it was at a time where like there was also 
um, you know, the, the big things on campus were like Animal Collective and the microphones and the books. I would play tracks from this album on my radio show pretty much every week. But they also, the radio station brought the books to perform at the college and it's definitely one of like the best shows I've ever seen. It was, I don't know if either you had the chance to see them, but it was like this, this like perfectly synced, it, it was like basically to the extent that they, they sample, they had a perfectly synced film that was all like samples of film. Wow. Um, completely synced to the to the audio and it was just it kind of blew my little mind at the time and then they played it like ballads and played more instrumentally and that was that was beautiful too it was like in a really tiny room and it felt very much of the moment for me at that time mm -hmm. the visuals must have really added to just the experience of listening to all these like samples and like you know kind of spaced out moments in the music the visuals were like tailored to each sample, like each word that was sampled, like very, it was like an associated image for whatever the word in question was and so meticulously edited. I was just watching it, trying to understand how they did it, how, how anyone could possibly put that together. Mm -hmm. No, that sounds cool. That's for some reason reminds me of when I saw The Knife on the Silent Shout tour in like 06 or something. And I feel like every song, there was some, it actually was kind of creepy. Like there were different um, like glow in the dark uh, animals that would pop up and different things on the screen. And, and obviously they're dressed kind of kooky and um, yeah, that was incredible. But when, when an artist is able to sync things like that, I think it's pretty, it really makes for a magical performance. Yeah. Yeah. What I loved about this record is that they, I feel like for the first time really incorporated their own vocals in. So it wasn't just the samples. Um, and I actually lean toward enjoying those songs more than the ones with the samples because uh, I feel like there's more of like a human element. There's something a little more to hold on to. It's a little less like collaged that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like I gravitated more towards those songs that were just more traditionally musical um, versus like the sampled music. But music with like a lot of samples really reminded me of like being in an art gallery and putting on the headphones <laughs> and then that's like what you would hear. It's like it felt very like educational in a way or something or like a commentary mm. on something. You know, for repeat, I I don't think either of you picked this, but um, I chose None But Shining Hours. Um, mm -hmm. I just like the melodic way it was when I was looking at the lyrics here because I'm like I always look up lyrics to songs that kind of like I gravitate towards there were a lot of words I didn't know the meanings of and I had to look them up and I was like I instantly feel smarter <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah like uh, listening to them makes me feel smarter in a way <laughs> I like that yeah, I think I would probably repeat uh, Smells Like Content and An Owl With Knees, which, like I was saying earlier, have a little more uh, of their actual vocals. And Peter, what would you repeat? I have to remember what the first track is called again. It's, is that A Little Longing Goes Away? A Little Longing, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that, that track as an introduction. It really like sounds like springtime to me. Mm -hmm. um, and like early spring, like April, when it's like starting to rain, but getting a little warmer, especially like in the city, because I, I really like continued listening to that record a lot once I moved. And I remember walking around in like the springtime in the city and feeling that kind of like 
it was just like sort of rainy days mm -hmm. and i think there is even that line in there it's like enjoy central park in spring that mm -hmm. just makes you feel like they're you know they're watching what you're doing um <laughs> that one i think i don't know how to pronounce it but it was vote vote big for copper gopped or something mm -hmm. right um, the danish titled <laughs> yeah. i used to play that on my on my radio show a lot um and i, I love there's like a kind of there's a moment like halfway through the track where this like tremolo voice uh, comes through the mix and it's just like very very heavenly to me. It's a really beautiful effect. Yeah. Yeah, that, I was reading that that song is based on like a folklore or something like that of the Jabberwocky. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's it's interesting where they kind of pull their little bits and pieces um, when it comes to their music. It's like, uh, it's almost like you want to look up what the inspiration came from for every song, just because it's a whole story, you know? I find sometimes, like, I accidentally encounter those samples. Um, mm. Like, I think actually the other day, and maybe it's what made me think of this, doing uh, this album for this, um, but my partner and I were watching the second season of Fargo and one of the characters quoted the Jabberwocky and nice. I was like what is this like why do I know this and she's like it's the Jabberwocky um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like right oh yeah from the book um, and similarly I was like a few years ago listening to a lot of Alan Watts recordings and there's a ton of that across across the book's records you know, for some reason when I was listening to this album I was sensing like bits of craft work and I don't know why exactly but um, I guess because Kraftwerk obviously did things with their vocals being repeated over and over again and, and samples here and there. And I don't know, I just kind of got a Kraftwerk vibe from certain songs that I didn't initially kind of feel when the album came out. But yeah, for me, the only one I would really skip uh, if I were forced to, I feel like this album flows really well. Uh, each song kind of blends into the next one really well. But I would probably skip Venice, which is about two minutes long. Mm. That's the one that it's kind of like this American reporter talking to Salvador Dali and asking kind of like, he's kind of fawning over him and asking kind of like a couple silly questions. I don't know. I just feel like there's more, there's, the text encompasses the entire song uh, and the music, the, the actual instrumental is kind of buried a bit. So it's, it's really, um, mm. I don't know. I wish there was a little more breathing room in that song. If the conversation had been dragged out amongst a, a five-minute track and there was actually three minutes of instruments and, and books kind of playing around, I think I would enjoy it more than just kind of the straightforward uh, text. Yeah, know? that makes sense. Yeah, I think the samples make it kind of hard to really get into the track because you're mostly focused on the conversation. I didn't pick that one, though. I picked uh, It Never Changes to Stop as my skip. Because I don't know, there's something about the audio of that dude in that song that really rubbed me the wrong way. Oh, <laughs> Very too. like Trump-esque or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's like, that's definitely my skip too, for for the same reason. Because the the disciplinarian or whoever they are just yeah just freaks me out to listen to it. It's not it's it's very jarring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not into it. The the banjo is really nice in it. Like the the instrumentation is very pretty. Yeah, it's kind of funny how sometimes, like, the sample or the audio can affect your experience of the music, too. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, what they were trying to, like, get out of that, you know, by doing this. Because it's, like, I can't imagine anyone would be like, this is great. This would be a great thing to listen to. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> I mean, 
Maybe they were trying to make you uncomfortable or like bring that idea of discomfort in there. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's so many albums from those eras to choose from. I feel like these have endured the test of time for me in the ways that <laughs> maybe some others have not. Yeah. yeah, definitely when we revisit certain albums from uh, the 90s and aughts, like, they just have not aged well. But at the time, they meant everything to us, you know? Yeah, it's really amazing how that happens. The things that had the most, like, excitement around them sometimes have the shortest lifespan. Yeah. Especially when um, time changes things and the context of things, I think. You know, when you're younger, you're just all about the moment you know, the immediate moment and then going out and having fun. And definitely, like, now as I'm older, like, I gravitate to the kind of softer, gentle. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not out there listening to, like, abrasive music too much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm, I hate to admit how, how much I just want background music sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not all yeah. the time, but, like... Yeah, maybe I've just grown soft in my old age, but I'm not. I'm not <laughs> quite like. Uh, I don't. I don't reach for lightning bolt quite the way I used to. Right. Right. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Well, on on a previous episode this season, we revisited Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, Ooh, which was a, a journey one. to revisit. Cause yeah, speaking of abrasive, yeah. That was yeah. A rough yeah, but one. as a teenager, I was <laughs> super into it. So. Yeah, totally. Uh, that was great. But yeah, I think. Yeah. It's funny, especially living, like, upstate in a very pastoral place. There's some times where I put on music that I'm like, I want to revisit this. And I'm that would be a good example of putting on Nine Inch Nails on, like, a beautiful day overlooking, <laughs> like, a like a bucolic forest. And it'd be like, something's <laughs> wrong here. <laughs> totally. Doesn't, doesn't quite work. <laughs> no. No. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's been so nice to catch up with you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for, for giving me the chance to talk to you guys and revisit the past. So that was another episode of Mixtape Memories, and we will catch you next time. Next time. Yay. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 